If you are actively seeking to be an English teacher, like you're fighting hard for it because that's a there's a lot of English teachers and not a lot of spots. And people who get to that place genuinely do love literature. But it's ironic that they don't end up recreating that for their students a lot of times. 54% of adults say they never read literary texts. Avid readers account for only 4% of adults. According to a USA Today article written by our friend Greg Tapo, he noted 27% of adults didn't read a single book in the course of the previous year. Welcome to Education X.0, the podcast where we talk about how education got to where it is today and how it can evolve to better service in the future. I'm Christy Durham. I'm Leslie Wake-Webster. And I'm AJ Webster. We want to talk today about English class. So some schools call it language arts, others call it English. It's also known as literature, and sometimes it's even called the humanities. We all had to take it every year of our school lives until college. Whether you were forced to read Moby Dick or Emily Dickinson, chances are you were bored. And then you responded by writing an equally boring essay your teacher was forced to read. It's a vicious cycle that kills the joy of reading and writing for everyone involved. In honor of English class survivors everywhere, we're beginning our podcast with a thesis statement. Yeah, I feel like that's the most appropriate way to start this, right? Kick it off with a good thesis statement. Who doesn't love a thesis Um, statement? (laughs) Right. So, right. Today's school structure is broken. English class, as it currently exists and is executed, isn't serving the learners well and isn't preparing students for their futures. So, what can be done? To transform English class, we must re-examine old biases and embrace a new definition of communications literacy. So to put it another way, in the first half of this podcast, we're going to talk about what currently doesn't work in English class and why. And in the second half, we're going to talk about some solutions and tools that teachers, students, and parents can use. We always like to have a a check on how we think English class is doing, a a report card, if you will. Um, So let's start with some statistics. In California, they give something called the Smarter Balance Test. It's kind of the big cumulative standardized test that kids take. And in 2019, English language arts for 11th grade, 57% of kids met or exceeded the standards. Now, if I can stop you right there. Sure. That is much higher than we had reported from the NAEP math stats, right? Correct. Right, so English is doing better, but it's still not great. No, 57% for all of us who are very well of what grades are. What what grade is that? Still an F. So 43% of kids are not, they're not meeting the standards. And we know that the measures are aimed at standards that we set long ago and don't account for the skills needed for the fourth industrial revolution. Creativity, collaboration, critical thinking in many ways. And one of the reasons for that is uh, a thing you guys call silos, right? Can you explain siloing? Uh, Yeah. So the practice of siloing disciplines began in an effort to simplify complex topics. So a silo discipline is taught in a dedicated classroom, such as a chemistry lab, where a student is taught a single subject, biology, physics, chemistry, there is a teacher that can focus on that specific subject, and students can absorb the information that is relevant only to the primary topic. Following subjects is easier for schools as well because it's easier to map out the curriculum. They're reinforced by the Bell schedule, which followed a factory model of efficiency, right? So there's discrete units of time dedicated to discrete tasks. It's an easier method to rate and categorize the student experience to ensure that every student is getting the right number of bytes of any particular subject. Now, the problem that we're referring to seems to apply more to middle and high school rather than elementary school. Although elementary schools still silo English as a discrete language arts blocks of time, younger kids seem to get more exposure to a variety of genres and styles. Right. I mean, I guess it's possible to mix 
anything with learning to read. So you can practice phonics with the, any text, Dr. Seuss, a greeting card, a short story, a weekly reader article. Did you guys have weekly reader? I so looked forward to the weekly reader. I had uh, SSR, which was Sustained Silent Reading. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just this little, it was like a little weekly news magazine we got. <laughs> okay, back to siloing. So siloed subjects goes back to Carnegie units and their goal of preparing kids to be good workers in an industrialized era, which is a very different goal from raising kids who love to read or preparing them to be great communicators and responsible citizens who can dissect an argument and weigh its merits for themselves. Okay, so it's outdated, but... Is that really a problem? I mean, breaking down subjects so the material is easier to digest and more simple to keep track of seems, on the face of it, like it should be fine, right? Like, what problems are we really looking at? Well, one of the problems is something that uh, an author called named Kelly Gallagher calls read aside, which he defines as the systematic killing of the love of reading, often exacerbated by the inane and mind-numbing practices in schools. So schools limit authentic reading experiences. Yeah, one former principal of a high school in the LA area actually said to us at one point uh, that he cut the silent reading block during the school day because he said it was a waste of instructional time, which I felt was such a misguided understanding of the need for kids to sit down and just enjoy a book, a novel, a magazine, whatever it is, of their own choosing. Right, a silent reading block is where they carve out time for kids to to have uninterrupted time to read something they want to read. They, they've chosen. Right. The book Redecide was another touchstone for us as we contemplated how to approach reading with our middle schoolers and then how we instituted sustained silent reading every day for our elementary kids. Right. I feel like in math, you touched on this a little bit, but there's the idea of literally making friends with the skills that you need. And I mean, imagine if you had an acquaintance and you never spent more than five or 10 minutes with them and you were never alone. It would be really hard to build any kind of relationship with them. And reading is like that. Students need a chunk of time to spend with reading, to explore, to get past the awkward parts, to find their groove with reading. And that requires time and choice. If it's forced upon you and you don't get to control it, the book is like your weird cousin that your mom says you have to play with and you're like, ugh, this again? <laughs> and I think you're right to point out, Les, that it it requires you to do it. Um, I, I think you said you do it alone or on your own. And that oftentimes in reading class, we're constantly instructing, constantly asking them questions and getting their thoughts and interrupting well, the flow interrupting the flow of reading that that kids just need to sit quietly alone with something that they're excited to get to know you know in that in that acquaintance way yeah so, i think uh, as an adult uh how irritated you are when you're just trying to read something and someone keeps interrupting you. And it would be even more irritating if you were trying to read that and the person was like, what do you think that means? Tell me what you think it means. It's like, just shut up. Let me read. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, or ask you to recount the facts of the plot. Like, <laughs> you know, the trivia questions we've asked on so many tests, just to check for reading, to check to make sure they've done it. You know, how many times did he enter the store? That's not a, that's not an authentic experience of how we read. Again, Highly recommend the book Read Aside to anyone uh, interested in the topic. English teachers also love literature more than is normal. <laughs> that's that's true, and I will say that as a former English major and English teacher, if you are actively seeking to be an English teacher, like you're fighting hard for it because that's a there's a lot of English teachers and not a lot of spots, and people who get to that place genuinely do love literature. But it's ironic that they don't end up 
recreating that for their students a lot of times. Yeah, I always like to look at the statistics, right? 54% of adults say they never read literary texts. Avid readers account for only 4% of adults. According to a USA Today article written by our friend Greg Tapo, he noted 27% of adults didn't read a single book in the course of the previous year. And that article is actually backed up by a more recent Pew Research article from 2019 that noted the exact same statistic. So it's not that we're saying we don't want adults to read. It's just that if we want to improve these averages, we have to take seriously the effects of the current model of English class. If English class is working, then why are so few adults... Taking that, yeah. Why are they not taking that reading into their lives? You know, we often talk about something called ROI, return on investment. And it's something that we think a lot about, AJ. We've talked a lot about it, but most educators rarely do. Right. I think it's an unusual, it's a very businessy term and it's unusual for educators. Economics term. Yep. To talk about what are we getting for the time we put in. Absolutely. Um, you know, spending many hours on such a small slice of any given subject. It seems that in today's English class, we spend a lot of hours on such a small slice of the subject. Right. So students are spending time on tasks that don't look anything like what professionals do in these fields. So a lot of it is out of date material or new material has been created that we haven't typically taught in English classes. There's new novels, new authors, new media. Right. And I feel like we should jump in and say, if you if you look at the definition of writer, not, not even expanding it to songwriter or composer or communicator, just writer, what professional writers do, they write newspaper articles and columns and blogs and tweets and essays and novels and screenplays and what kids are writing in English class is literary criticism essays. And you know who does that? English professors. And that's an even harder job to get than English teacher. If like, basically, if you told someone, here's $100,000, the worst thing they could do with it would be to go get a master's or PhD in English because they will end up, if they're lucky, being an adjunct professor in, you know, Chatsworth. It's just a super hard, specific slice of the professional market, but we spend all high school training students to be English professors. And yet in English class, a student will rarely read anything other than novels or plays and seldom write anything other than, as you were pointing out last, a literary criticism essay. So why is that? It's because we haven't examined the biases and traditions that we've we've sort of taken on. You like to call these barnacles. I do, yeah. The idea that Something clings on, and then we forget that we can change it. It attaches itself to English class, uh, in this case, that we read literary novels and plays and poetry, and that we write literary criticism about them, about their themes or their symbols. Those are barnacles that have attached themselves and haven't been scraped off and reexamined. Right. And so we're going to go through quite a few barnacles uh, right now, just a list of some of the most common barnacles that really... As we talk about them, it's worth thinking about, like, yeah, should we re-examine this? So one that we've already mentioned, short stories, novels, and poems are the most valid or maybe the only valid thing that we study in English class. Right. (laughs) And by the way, show me an adult you know who voluntarily goes out and buys a book of short stories. Another one is writing is primarily an academic activity, not a vital necessary skill that everyone can do and should do. I think, Les, you you had talked about your sister having an experience with this. Yes, yes. So my older sister, Conley, and I both went to Henry Clay High School. And uh, Conley is a great communicator who basically speaks for a living. 
Um, that's what she does. She gets up in front of groups of people and communicates with them, and she's paid very well for it. But she had the experience in high school of being told, you're not a writer. Where there was this very hardcore English teacher. Her name was Stanley Wiggs. Um, and Mrs. Wiggs was very harsh on writers. And she would, um, just your paper would bleed red ink as she you know, graded you on your, your mechanics and your content and all the ways you failed. And Conley's first assignment in that class was simply describe a place you've been. And uh, she wrote about our cabin in Lake Cumberland, where we had spent, you know, all the weekends of our childhood, a place we knew really well. And she didn't do it to Mrs. Wiggs's satisfaction. And she got back the paper, you know, again, bleeding red. And Mrs. Wiggs had written at the top of it, I don't believe you've ever been to this place. <laughs> and Conley was devastated. It was like she'd been called a liar. And I, I know for a fact it affected her confidence and caused her to think of herself as not a writing person, not an English person. And it's such a, a example of how we can define, quote, good writing so narrowly. That actually leads us to another barnacle, which is that the idea that formal and academic writing is the most important type of writing, which just contradicts everyone's lived experience. All you have to do is look at, like, what's more powerful, a 15-page academic essay or a tweet from President Trump? Right. Written documents are the most important form is another another of those barnacles. So plays are meant to be watched, not read. Uh, and this ignores things like TikTok or memes or graphic design as ways of communicating. Right. Very powerful ways. Um, another barnacle, and this is one that English teachers are really guilty of, is believing that archaic is more elevated than modern. So, you know, there's, we, if you love Shakespeare, you love Shakespeare. That's great. I have nothing against Shakespeare, but it's important to understand that in Shakespeare's time, that language wasn't ancient and archaic. The people hearing it understood what was being said. So this idea that somehow we're supposed to overcome the barrier of the language to truly appreciate it, that, that wasn't what was happening. The groundlings, uh, you know, standing there in the globe would have like known what the jokes that were being made. And there were raunchy jokes and there were fat guys who ate too much and outrageous women who flirted too much. It was essentially the two and a half men of its time with more death. Perhaps the biggest barnacle um, is that we teach writing through writing literary analysis, papers, um, literary criticism, essays. And that that seems to be a misuse of um, that kind of the written form of communication. Right. This is an example of how we we justify things, bad practice in, in the karate kid model. So we say, we're going to teach someone how to write by analyzing something and writing a literary paper when it would actually be much more useful to teach the writing directly. So for example, if you want to teach someone to write a novel, you read and analyze the novel and then you write a novel. You don't write a paper about the novel and I'm speaking as a television writer, one of the very first exercises every baby TV writer does is writing a spec script, which is a sample of a show that already exists. And my first spec in 1996 was a Seinfeld. And to write it, I watched every episode I could get my hands on. And then I watched one over and over. I watched The Soup Nazi, which is a great episode. And I took notes on what happened, how long the scene was, what people's objectives were, where the act breaks were. And I did that over and over until I felt confident that I understood how a Seinfeld was structured. And then I used that as a sort of scaffold for building my own episode. Uh, it was a great way to learn because I was using a TV script to write a TV script. But you know what I didn't do? 
I didn't write a literary criticism paper about the soup Nazi and its use of setting to convey Larry David's disdain for petty tyrants. That's, that's right. You did an analysis with the, the specific end in mind. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I was actually still analyzing a, a piece of literature, but I it was to the end of being able to do that myself as a writer. Right. So all the English class tools that are meant to help us extract meaning from written work, so looking at things like tone or metaphor or setting, those those were meant to help us extract meaning, but now the tail wags the dog, right? So in many instances, those have become the goal of the reading rather than a tool to understand the reading. That's right. That's right. Which is part of the big disconnect we're seeing between the intention of English class, which is to help people love literature, and the actual experience, which is people walk away saying, I'm not a writer, I don't like reading, and I don't read anymore. All right. So it's not working. I think we can all agree. What What do we do? What are, what are we suggesting here? As always, I feel like the best thing to do is go back to first principles. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we do this thing called English class? What is the reason for English class? I think we can probably lay it out in two different buckets, right? There's incoming communication, what we take in and receive, what someone else says, writes, draws, and shares it with us. And then there's outgoing communication, what we create and produce ourselves and push out into the world. So let's start with incoming communication, which in school is traditionally taken the form of literature, novels, plays, and poetry. Why would we study that besides someone saying you have to, it's tradition? Why do we read any of these uh, novels, any of these plays like Romeo and Juliet? What's the point? I think that English teachers have a couple of goals in mind. Um, I know that we taught English, all, all three of us taught English, and I think we could all say, you know, cultural literacy might be a goal that we're after, and that's something that we talked about in our episode about a case for change, but I think maybe more prominently would be that English teachers want to allow students to better understand the human condition, to really help to develop empathy in their students, allow them to walk in someone else's shoes. I mean, that really is the, I think, the most powerful thing about reading fiction or memoirs or things like that is developing that perspective or that point of view from someone else. Right. It's, it's like all those posters that are always in the children's section of the library where it's like reading is a gateway to another world. And it's like Green Lantern is riding a unicorn in space while he's holding a book. And like for a lot of people before the love of reading was beaten out of them, reading was a gateway to another world. And, you know, it, it still can be, just not necessarily in the highbrow literary sense. Like, look at the sales of Beach Reads or Fifty Shades of Grey. People enjoy inhabiting a different world if they're allowed to choose. You know, AJ and I started to debate this a little bit, right? Because I was really pondering that idea of, is it because we have to be able to read something that allows allows us to put ourselves into that person's situation, setting, shoes. And so therefore, things like those beach reads, they're more relatable. And you had a good point, AJ, about it It doesn't necessarily have to be so current. I, yeah, I think even these, these old reads, you know, these classic novels, they're still relatable if we make our focus relating to them. Does that make sense? So, for example, my both of my kids in high school read things like uh, Lord of the Flies, Scarlet Letter, Wuthering Heights, and it was my contention that they can't possibly see themselves in that time and place, and therefore maybe they're struggling to relate. So I'll you take, say not not so. Well, I'll take Lord of the Flies for example. So when Madison read Lord of the Flies, she had to write a, an extensive essay on the biblical allusions and biblical symbolism in it. 
And when Nolan read Lord of the Flies, he had to write an extensive essay on comparing Lord of the Flies to the theories of Sigmund Freud. Neither of those things connect to the idea that people are tribal and they sometimes can be overly harsh about not small things. Why were they not spending their time reading Lord of the Flies focused on the human aspect and how that human aspect related to their real lives? Right. Like if you simply ask the question, you know, which of your classmates would you not want to be trapped on a desert island with? <laughs> You're suddenly relating to Lord of the Flies. Les, you wrote uh, an essay on Scarlet Letter, right? Was that your thesis? In- I did, I did. And it wasn't great, I'll be honest. My, my thesis statement really was, here's 60 pages I wrote about the Scarlet Letter so I can graduate. But, <laughs> but it is actually a great novel. And um, it was it was reinterpreted really powerfully for the screen by the um, movie Easy A. And um, if you watch that movie, you'll see like, oh, wow, this is this is a story about someone who is ostracized, someone who has their reputation challenged. And what does that mean? And what does it mean? Why do women get treated a certain way if they're sexually promiscuous and men don't? And when you start digging into that, like that's high school. So totally relatable, yeah. Well, and I was going to say, in today's, like, social media, you know, the prevalence of social media in kids' lives, wow, that that is really powerful today to be able to make that connection for kids who are, who are experiencing that in, in, a, in a really profound way. So totally relatable for high school, and yet I, that the only thing I remember talking about with the Scarlet Letter was something about some plant growing in a churchyard or something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, at the very beginning of Scarlet Letter, there's like a 60-page preface where the narrator, who you sort of assume is Nathaniel Hawthorne, talks about like basically how you, when your reputation suffers, it's like some virtual version of yourself goes out and gets beat up by other people. And I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. exactly social media. That's what happens. People watch from a distance as their virtual presence is just beat up and abused by other people. So I guess it's my contention that any of these books, you know, that has stood the test of time could be worthwhile if instead of focusing on, again, the the symbolism, the metaphor, the, the connection to some abstruse theory, we focus on what were people's point of views? How did real people live? How does that connect to real lives? Which I think is the whole point behind reading literature in school anyway, is to make those connections and develop that sense of the understanding of humanity. I'd go a long way towards kids really wanting to to continue to read classics and or just continue to read because now they're viewing literature as a way to connect regardless of when it's written, right? That there is a way to connect and to extract meaning for themselves. Right, and I feel like... uh... We're going to talk later about the communications literacy toolkit, but there's another toolkit that you guys have discussed that is really relevant to this, which is the lenses of culture. Can we pause for a second to explain what that is? So the lenses of culture toolkit, one of the things that we have focused a lot about, as we said, what's the purpose of teaching something? Why do we do a certain thing? Let's let's go back to first principles is we created some uh, thinking routines to help make thinking visible. One of those is lenses of culture. And the Lenses of Culture Toolkit is ostensibly a social science toolkit. It's how do we understand a culture? Here are a couple of categories you can talk about. So what is the culture's language? What is the culture's technology, their arts, their beliefs and mores? 
Um, there are several different categories, and again, we can always link to that in the description. But the benefit of toolkits is they're meant to be not applied narrowly, but to be something you can take out and apply all over the place. So, for example, lenses of culture, if you start a new job, you can ask yourself, what does language, how do people talk about the work at this job? What are the beliefs and mores of this job? What technologies do we use in this job to help you quickly gain an understanding of that culture? Well, right, like let's well, say you're starting a, a new job on the Pequod, and you're like, what's up with Captain Ahab? And someone's like, don't talk about the whale with him. <laughs> well, so that's it, right? You say, okay, the lenses of culture, you can look at a novel as a culture trapped between the pages of this book, and you can say, within Moby Dick, What's the language people are using? How are they discussing things? Um, what are the arts of the people in this book? And use this understanding of culture to get at what are the lives like of people within this world that you're you're exploring. Right. And I think a, a great use of that right now, a lot of people are turning to literature as a way to educate themselves about uh, race and the racial experience in America. Uh, especially if they are white and live in mostly white communities, they might turn to a book to try to understand and gain some empathy for someone else's experience. Um, I know our son Lincoln's middle school uh, had the students read The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And there was a great focus on just understanding the characters and what are they saying about their own lives? What is their experience? And let's dig into points of view. Why do these characters feel this way? I do think it's important to acknowledge that some scholars have said that focusing over much on developing empathy through literature uh, can be actually kind of a dangerous idea. And their argument is that reading becomes a kind of cop-out. Like instead of taking action to challenge racism, for example, a white person can solace themselves by saying, well, I read a book about it, so I felt that character's pain. Um, I personally think that more empathy is always better, but I see the point, and I think this argument intersects with a larger discussion about social justice and activism, which everyone comes at differently. So we've kind of dealt here with incoming communication. I think now it's time to look at outgoing communication, the things that we create and produce. Creating and composing and writing, authoring things, is a completely separate skill from receiving those communications and analyzing them. And I got a really nice window into this separation when I was doing my student teaching in Hopewell Valley in Pennington, New Jersey, uh, because my mentor teacher, Dr. Jane Vogel, taught them separately. She taught a composition class, and that was it was separate from reading things and responding to them. It was just, let's look at communicating with other people. Let's think about what is your purpose? Are you trying to persuade, to inform, or to entertain? And then you compose or construct something that suits your purpose. And while we often call this writing not everyone literally does this by writing. Um, a writer friend of mine, a TV writer friend of mine, has cerebral palsy, and he had a game-changing moment as a student when he was allowed to do his essays as voice recordings. So we can look at writing as more than pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. I think that's a, a, an interesting point, Les, and I, I wish more schools would actually break apart the incoming communication from the outgoing communication, right? That idea of having a composition class as separate from a um, an investigation of literature and communication class, maybe. Um, because in a lot of ways, teachers might be forced into, because of the time and limitations that, you know, the, the time and limited access they have to their students, they've only got 50 minutes 
every day to be able to do both things. And so therefore, it's much quicker, much more efficient to have them read a novel and then write an essay on the novel because you're covering both in, in a shorter period of time. Right, right. But I, I do agree. I think separating the incoming and outcoming skills and practices would be huge um, for outgoing slash writing. Um, Stephen King, in his book On Writing, really talks about writing being a skill that is coached more than taught. And that's been very true in my experience. It's like you do the thing, you make something, you write something, and then someone gives you feedback and then you reshape it. It's almost like basketball players watching game tape. You know, you, you get the feedback and then you try again and you try again in many different forms. There are so many forms of outgoing communication beyond, you know, an academic essay. So we're going to run through a bunch of just examples of here, all, all sorts of ways we could communicate. So you could write a newspaper article. Right. Well, and we've talked about this again. We talked about it in math class, but that idea of trying again, you're, you're exactly right to say you've got to be able to try, try again without the burden of a grade coming at you. And I know in every English class, the expectation is you're going to produce a rough draft and then you're going to produce a final draft. But, but very rarely do teachers give the necessary support and feedback on the writing for kids to truly be able to then iterate on, on their rough draft. You know, they, they don't have that opportunity. And so oftentimes they write it and then they're, you know, they've got, what, what did you say? It, it bleeds red, you know, with, with the grades and the comments post, post, I can't do anything about it now. It's, it's done. I've turned it in and you've graded it, but boy, it's covered in comments. Right. So yeah, going beyond just print text, literary essays, right? There's all kinds of things. So as you said, newspaper articles or letters, blog posts, any kind of fiction like TV scripts or movie scripts, you know, is a, a great different kind of communication. Right. Song sure. lyrics, incredibly powerful. Tweets. Yeah. Tweets. Tweets might win the day for power, power <laughs> per word, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I will say, you know, maybe the goal is to communicate criticism. And that's great if that is something you actually want to do. Um, you could apply your analytical lens to that. And a lot of people do that, but they do it now in video essays. Right. YouTube is full of really interesting people doing thoughtful criticism, whether it's about the sort of toxic masculine culture of the Big Bang Theory, or, you know, one of my favorites is The Origins of Cthulhu the moon, and the Moon Lord, A Terraria Theory. And this was created by some kid. I don't, you know, I don't know. But if you look it up, he says it took him a month to think it out, and he includes references. And, you know, it's a literary essay with over two million views of people watching it just because it, they found it meaningful. I mean, show me one English professor whose essay has been read by two million people. Okay, maybe Harold Bloom, but still, mostly that's, that's a phenomenal use of communication. And this kid put in all the work and built and constructed the thing because he cared about it. And so therefore, we want to encourage kids to be able to communicate in various ways. There's a lot of power in them having the autonomy to produce outgoing communication in a way that makes sense to them, that they feel comfortable in. So whether you're analyzing communication that's incoming or you're creating outgoing communication that you want to be um, effective, there are a lot of tools at your disposal. And one of which 
was, again, one of our toolkits we call the Communications Literacy Toolkit. Yeah, we spent a lot of time, Ted, AJ, and I spent a lot of time developing this one, um, talking really about, you know, authors, creators, designers, all kind of as valid communicators, right? It's not just authors of novels, um, but, you know, everything is created to send a message to tell a story or to say something out in the world. Right. You're, you can create or make a dance or architecture as much as you can a, a book. You can design a chair. You can, I mean, all sorts of things are designed and they communicate a message for an intended audience. When designing a piece of communication, whether you're going to make a video or write a story, the first thing you have to do is evaluate what's your purpose. Why are you doing this thing? Right. And some really common purposes in communication are to to narrate, to inform, to entertain, and to persuade. There are many other purposes. Um, but persuasion is one that's a very powerful practical skill. Uh, I had an English teacher in high school do a great example of that, where we were literally asked to write a pitch to get students to participate in a blood drive. And we all thought it was just an exercise in writing a persuasive paper. And unbeknownst to us, our teacher took those blood drive essays and read them to another class and said, scale of one to five, would you actually go donate blood? And that's the grade we got. And it was a very powerful, <laughs> very powerful lesson in understand your purpose. <laughs> well, and that leads to the second thing that you consider as a creator or author, which is audience. Right. You know, it's it's important that not only do you understand your purpose, but less had you have understood your audience as, as a writer of that paper, you guys as students might have thought a little more carefully about what it is that you were constructing, knowing that your audience wasn't your English teacher, but it was actually your fellow students who are going to be evaluating it to be able to, to show up to this blood drive. So super powerful and something that most students don't have the opportunity um, to, to do in English classes. Generally, you write for your teacher, they grade it, they give it back, rather than putting it out into the world for and getting some, audiences. yeah, and to get that 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 genuine, authentic feedback is important. Um, we did something that was really geared towards audience at Sycamore. Our fifth graders formed cereal companies. Right. So they, we they got in groups and they had to name their company and come up with a branding for their company, but. The point was they were to make a breakfast cereal that kids would buy that was healthy. So they knew their purpose and they knew their audience. audience. And the process involved an analysis portion. So they went to the grocery store and they looked at cereal boxes and they took notes and they thought about how cereal boxes conveyed information. Then in the process of this project, they created cereal boxes of their own with illustrations and colors. And, and the, the point was, it wasn't just about the writing. It was that your, your cereal box, the design, the color choice, the images that you chose were also going to communicate something to your audience and that your audience was going to decide whether or not they were excited about your cereal. Oftentimes at, at, you know, that first glance of that box. Mm-hmm. So that was an important key in something that they had to really think about and investigate. And then they even created ads after that. So they made little video commercials. And again, this um, this isn't an obvious English class kind of assignment. But if our purpose as educators is to help them understand um, creating narratives and using those to, to persuade, 
why not make something with an authentic audience that they can actually go through the process and experience what persuading is really like? Another thing, so after purpose and audience that we want to encourage students to be aware of is bias. So you're thinking about what did the author put in? What did they leave out? What kind of beliefs and values are reflected in whatever's being created, whether those are yours as the creator or something you're reading? Right. This is linked to understanding your audience, but also to the world at large, right? So if you are a flat earth proponent, you need to know what arguments you'll have to encounter. Another piece is conventions, tools, symbols, techniques of a medium that you have to use in order to be effective. So, and the affordances of if you're writing a paper, like a print text essay, or you're creating a video, or you're making a graphic novel to illustrate your point, all of those have different tools and techniques and uh, possibilities that you can do. So, AJ, what you're pointing out here, traditionally, when you're writing an essay, things like punctuation matter to that essay, right? So, the, the proper punctuation, the proper, you know, sentence structure is important so that the reader really is able to get a sense of what you're intending. Those are important conventions in it, in a, something that you're writing, an an essay, essay. for example. Right. You're, you're writing something in what we would call, quote, the King's English. And a great example of how that's relevant in one medium, but not another. Imagine if you took a, a full sentence from an academic essay and tweeted it suddenly you're not following the conventions of Twitter anymore. Twitter is about punchy, short. Um, It is not grammatically correct. And it looks like you're doing something really weird if you put that long academic sentence on Twitter. Well, and I know for my teenage daughter, oftentimes when I uh, text or, you know, send something out like a tweet and I punctuate it, she she definitely lets me know that that's not appropriate for the, the medium. So, right. Each medium is almost like a a different country you're visiting. And you're like, how do they speak the language here? What is customary? What do I have to do to successfully not look like a freak in this country? And that's 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 what we're talking about. Yeah. And so there's a, a grammar or a vocabulary within any particular medium. And so it's important to think about what those are and to use them consciously or to understand them if you're, if you're reading, quote, reading a commercial or a movie or a board game or whatever it is. It's important to know that it's not universal. There isn't one way to do it. You learn it in writing an essay that you can apply to everything, that each medium has its own rules, conventions, techniques that are being used. And you've got to allow students the ability to dig into the various mediums in order to be able to better maybe understand what it is based on the medium that they're choosing to communicate, that outgoing communication. Uh, Right. So if we right now are producing a podcast and we actually played around a little bit with like, how do we make this sound like a real podcast and not just four people recording themselves talking? And so we kind of studied other podcasts and Peter, you told us like, oh, you need to have music here or do that. So we we learned some conventions of the medium of podcasting. And um, I think it's great that at Sycamore, you guys had first and second graders do a podcast, right? Yeah, they're actually currently working on podcasts. So evaluating the reliability and authenticity of information is another piece of what we talk about with students in using this toolkit. And also, are you using your ability to communicate ethically? So for example, you know, 
you can't shout fire in a crowded theater is the classic example, but you also shouldn't use your powers to spread misinformation. Right. So thinking about after you've created having a separate part of your brain that considers your impact and is that in alignment with ethical values? Uh, I think that's an incredibly important point that all students should engage in. Um, in the world today. Right. So this brings us full circle back to the idea of uh, connecting with, you know, the humanistic concerns and how do we understand other people and how do we communicate with them, which is a a really worthy goal for, uh, you know, a school experience. Um, And we've talked about some takeaways for ways that we can make English class closer to that. Right. So following our our traditional essay format, the conclusion. (laughs) Right. The takeaways are, One, English class is siloed. It's focused on classics and literary essays, and that might not be a a very useful 21st century model of learning. Yeah, because of ROI, it doesn't make sense spending the time that we spend. Uh, It doesn't have an application in understanding humanity and or for future life skills. Right, and it it doesn't lead to students continuing to interact with literature or reading in the way that they are trained in school. Yeah, I guess our call to action here is we've got to rethink what's happening in these English classes and and try to maybe redesign uh, with our our goals in mind. Right. So I think that for us, the the real goals of communication literacy class, which is how we rebrand English language arts, is to help students understand what other people are thinking and what they're communicating through stories, songs, movies, essays, etc. And to help students become better at communicating their own messages. And that's a worthy goal that will undoubtedly make the world a better place. 